Now, if you'll take your Bibles, will you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and uh, verse 21. And then I want to just turn back to Ephesians chapter 2 for a few verses. So, first of all, our text from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, verse 21. Two of the great verses that you will ever read in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, and then 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. Amen. And then if you'll turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, and the very familiar verses, verse 8 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then if we go back to our Hebrews chapter 13. I want to consider with you tonight the great subject of what it means to be spiritually equipped spiritually equipped. You can see uh, in verse 21 that he says, equip you with everything good, and he continues in the verse. And so I want to consider, as I said, the subject from these verses of spiritually equipped, being spiritually equipped. Now, as I have said before, these two verses reveal to us the purpose of the eternal covenant between the Father and the Son that we call, refer to, as the covenant of redemption. Very, very important uh, covenant to understand and to grasp because all the historical covenants uh, that we read about in the Old Testament leading up to the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 are on the basis or the outworking, the expression of this eternal covenant that we read about here in verse 20, for example, the blood of the eternal covenant. So these are verses that open up to us quite plainly that there is a covenant that is eternal, that exists before time. And verse 20, you remember from the previous time we considered this, this verse, reveals to us that there are three, at least three accomplishments that uh, are on the surface immediately in verse 20 uh, of the eternal covenant, this covenant made in eternity past. The first significant accomplishment is that reconciliation is achieved. Now, how do we know that? Because of how he addresses the verse. Verse 20, he says, Now may the God of peace. And what he means by that is that the sheep who belong to the great shepherd are at peace with God, or God is at peace with them. That's why he's called the God of peace. So the first great significant achievement uh, that comes out of the eternal covenant of redemption is the achieving of reconciliation between God and his people. Secondly, he talks about resurrection, right? He says resurrection is attained because God brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. So God has brought Christ from the dead, given him life, he hell holds life, and resurrection is the accomplishment of the eternal covenant of redemption. It's a necessary part of it. So, we have reconciliation, we have resurrection, and then, of course, he says, uh, it's by the blood of the eternal covenant. So, the third significant uh, uh, accomplishment is redemption is accomplished. The sheep of the great shepherd are redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, by his precious blood. So, these are, on the surface, three of the things that are the outworking of the eternal covenant of redemption. 
It involves reconciliation, it involves re resurrection, and it involves this redemption. And those three significant things are all directed at and all pointed at the sheep. But they are accomplished by Jesus himself. And so, when we consider these, the, the sheep, we who are the sheep, we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we belong, the text tells us, to the great shepherd of the sheep. Not just in, or, in any ordinary shepherd, like you might find in Israel in the old uh, 2,000 years ago, or even in the Old Testament. Not like, not like those shepherds, but the great shepherd. There are no other shepherds that could ever do what Jesus did for his sheep, for his people. And of course, what he did for them was to reconcile them by his, through his resurrection and his death, his redemption, to bring them to God. So, when we are talking about this eternal covenant in verse 20, we are not talking about the new covenant that the writer to the Hebrews told us about in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10, that covenant, the new covenant, coming from Jeremiah 31. That is not the covenant that he refers to here, because this covenant is said explicitly to be eternal, the eternal covenant. Uh, the new covenant is so significant also for the believer from Jeremiah 31, because it is the pinnacle or the end of all the historical covenants that you read about in your Old Testament. So, uh, when you look at Noah, and you look at Abraham, you look at Moses, and you look at David, and you see the covenants that God made with them, they are all uh, subsumed within and under the achieving of the new covenant, of which the New Testament and the writer to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the mediator of. He brings it into effect. He accomplishes the, the uh necessary things that have to be achieved, as I've already mentioned, that spring from the eternal covenant. The new covenant in time is the achieving of these things. And it certainly is new because it is contrasted with the old in the Old Testament. The old being the Mosaic structure and covenant itself. Uh, in fact, Jeremiah says, or God says to Jeremiah, that he would make a new covenant not like the old covenant, but a new covenant with the houses of Israel and the houses of Judah. So it's not like the old covenant, and it's not like the old covenant because the old covenant was an external thing. You saw it on the tablets of stone. It was written. It was there before their eyes. But it, this new covenant is said to be an internal working of God. It is not written on tablets of stone, but it is written on the heart and internal inscribing by God. And it is new covenant because it is a covenant that God is making between himself and his people, or as you might want to say from verse 20 in the eternal covenant, it's the accomplishing of redemption from that uh, to the sheep, and of which Jesus is again the mediator. So the new covenant is a consequence, like other covenants, of the eternal covenant of redemption and the internal features of that covenant are as I say reconciliation the resurrection of Jesus and the redemption accomplished by our Lord Jesus based on the compact the transaction the agreement the covenant between the Father and the Son there's not one of us who can comprehend the mind of God we cannot enter into eternity past and probe the depths of what God considered in all of his undertaking. But what we do have the privilege of doing is to read in Scripture the outworking of what God determined. So when we talk about things like predestination or uh, election or foreordination, all of these great terms that sometimes are confusing to us, they are all the expression and the outworking of something between father and son to the benefit of sheep, the benefit of God's people. So, these are the facts of verse 20 on the surface, right? I've tried to enter into a little bit of that, but for what purpose did God do that? That's the question we should ask ourselves. Why is verse 20 there? What is the purpose of verse 20? Why does he talk about the God of peace doing this, bringing again from the dead Jesus, our Lord, the great shepherd of the sheep? For what purpose 
has he done this through the blood of the eternal covenant? Well, the answer is verse 21. That is the answer. So, notice straight off in verse 21, to equip you with everything good. That is the main purpose of verses 20 and 21. The main purpose is that you and I would be equipped. But will you notice a secondary purpose also in verse 21? It is God who is working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. So you have these two, two purposes. There's a main purpose and there's a secondary purpose. The main purpose is that we would be equipped with everything good. And the secondary purpose is that God is the one who is working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. And so we see, when we consider that from this equipping of ourselves, the first thing I want you to notice is that it is not by your power. It is by God's power. Because it's a prayer, verse 20, may the God of peace, and then if you go to verse 21, may the God of peace equip you with everything that is good. The first thing that we should understand that this, by the spiritual equipping, it is not within your power to achieve this equipping. It is something God does. So, as verse 20 says, may the God of peace, verse 21, equip you with these things. Now, I read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, because they are significant and they are related to these kinds of things. We know that even our faith, is the gift of God. I mean, that's expressly said in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It is the gift of God. You are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God. And to show you that it is not of yourselves, he says, Paul says, and not of yourselves. So we know that even faith is something that is given us by God. We do not possess the spiritual ability nor the spiritual power to believe the gospel apart from the sudden intervention of God himself. And in conversion, the Holy Spirit does his remarkable work within the human heart, regenerating, giving a new heart, a new mind by sovereign power. It is the same power that is used to create the world. It is the same power that brings again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, resurrection power. So regenerating power is sovereign power. It's the power of God. And you and I do not possess the ability, do not possess that power, do not possess that strength that we can just of ourselves believe the gospel. It is a gift of God. It is not of ourselves. In my study of this, it came to me that conversion then is what we might call a divine surprise. God does something. You recognize that God has done something. You begin to grow in grace and in the knowledge. You, you discover that, that you have new desires, that you have new aspirations, that you have holy desires and holy thoughts. You recognize immediately also that you are in a great struggle, in a great war, spiritually speaking. You're at war with the world. You're at war with yourself, at war with the flesh, and so on. And that, of course, is because of what God has done. He has accomplished in you. And so conversion, like Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, was a divine surprise. Jesus intervened right before his very eyes and showed him himself. And what that means for all of us in a variety of ways in our conversion, in our regeneration, is that God the Holy Spirit is the one who reduces us and removes from us all the obstacles and all the hindrances that we would bring to the table in believing. Because we would come with all of our baggage, we would come with all of our trouble, and we would try to bring it into our conversion, and so on, and psychologically, physiologically, or however you want to think about it, we would try to bring that to salvation and say, I did it, somehow. When the truth of the matter is we did nothing. God did it all on our behalf. He worked by the Spirit's power, worked in our hearts, and caused us to willingly believe and to freely believe this glorious gospel that we now love and cherish and hold to very dearly. So, when Paul says to the Ephesians that this is how you are saved by grace through faith, he's very careful to add, it is not by 
your works. Be very careful to say that. So our salvation or our being saved, becoming believers in the Lord Jesus, is not something you work at or have worked up or have accomplished by what you have done. Because salvation is a gift. Salvation is by grace and never by works. And that's why Paul says immediately, and not by our works. And so all the accomplishment of the statement that it is not by works is simply to remove any ground of boasting that you or I would naturally have and naturally bring to conversion. I chose and did it myself. When the facts are, no, God worked it in you, made you willing to believe, and you cast yourself upon Jesus as a result. But that's as remarkable as that is, and as incredible as that is, Verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 is all the more remarkable. And sometimes we pay scant regard to verse 10 while we focus our attention on verses 8 and 9. But verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 says, For we are His workmanship. We are His workmanship. Now notice whose workmanship we are. We are not our own workmanship, nor did we contribute to our workmanship in any way whatsoever. We are His. We are God's workmanship. Or to put it another way, we are the result of what God has done. We are God's handiwork. We are God's handiwork. You look at creation, you look at the stars in the, in the sky at night, and you look at the blades of grass and the birds in the field and the fish in the sea. Uh, I was just reading an article about the migratory uh, effects or abilities that birds have to fly great distances and then to return to sometimes the same place. And I think I was telling John a while back about the salmon run uh, that he knows so well about up there in the Yukon and all of that. How I'd read a story about a man tracking the salmon as they had made their way out to the ocean and then all the way back to the very place they were spawned in. Now, who can accomplish such a thing? Only God, right? It's the handiwork of God, the creative power of God. We, he says, Paul to the Ephesians, are his workmanship, his handiwork. Or to put it as Paul tells the Romans in chapter 9, we are clay in the hands of a potter who molds us as he determines and as he directs, and as you know, the potter sits at the wheel and he fashions the pot, and if he doesn't like it, he crumples it all up and he starts again. He has the power to do it, and he does it till he is satisfied with his handiwork, with his workmanship. So this workmanship of God, according to Paul in Ephesians 2.10, is said to be created in Christ Jesus. One thing about the epistle to the Hebrews is that it is all about Christ. It is all about the superiority, the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ in his office of our high priest. He has made atonement, sacrifice, and he makes intercession as a consequence of his atoning sacrifice for his people. And so all that is created in Christ Jesus, we being the workmanship of God, are the result of that. Now why has God done that? Paul answers that question again in verse 10 of Ephesians 2. This is what he says, For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why are you saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, it being the gift of God? It is because you are the handiwork, the workmanship of God for good works. Why has God saved you? For good works which God has determined beforehand. So some people are hung up struggle with, well, what is a good work? How do I know if my works are good and so on? First of all, recognize that God is the one who has established the works that please Him and calls them good, and which He has determined that we should accomplish as believers, since we have become believers, from eternity past to do the very things that please God. And this is so important for us, I think, to understand, because this is what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us in verse 21. So why has God done what he has done, saved us by grace? It is to the accomplishing the doing of good works for his glory, which he, God, determined beforehand that we 
should actually do them. And so in similar fashion, as I say, the writer to the Hebrews, he says here in verse 21 that God has equipped us, and notice the text in verse 21, He has equipped us with everything good for what purpose? That you may do His will. That you may do God's will. And at the same time, He works in us, notice the text, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. So notice that, that God, this is the prayer of the writer to the Hebrews, that the God of peace would equip these Hebrew Christians with everything good so that they may do the will of God. And at the same time, it is God working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, all to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself forever and ever. So notice, the equipping is the work of God the doing of that which pleases God is my responsibility. I am accountable to do the will of God. Every believer is called upon to obey and do what God's will, but it is the equipping that comes from God that enables me and enables you to do that which is pleasing in your sight, which tells me again that in saving us, God has left nothing to chance. Of course, there is no such thing. And not only that, but God has left nothing to your power to gain the end. He will bring us to glory. Because He's our God. And He's doing His work and His plan. Working in us. So this equipping, this spiritual equipping as I call it, enables you and me to please Him. To do that which is pleasing in His sight. And what is pleasing in God's sight? But the will of God doing what God wills. You know, when I think about that, verse 20 and 21, how beautiful salvation is. But not only how beautiful salvation is, but how beautiful sanctification is. You know, sanctification is a great struggle, isn't it? It's what you're occupied with every day of your life. You read your Bible, you pray to the Lord, you resist temptation, you deal with sin, you fight, you engage in spiritual warfare, and yet it is God. It is God who saved you to do God who saved you and God who sanctifies you to accomplish that. Both of them, the saving and the sanctifying, are ultimately the work and the handiwork of God himself. And the writer to the Hebrews tells these Hebrew Christians in chapter 2 verse 11 that it is the Lord who sanctifies them. It's the Lord who sanctifies them. So verse 21 is the intended purpose or the end of verse 20. The covenant between father and son. Why did the father and the son sit down if they did sit down? I can't say they sat down because they didn't have bodies and they don't have bodies except the Lord Jesus now. But however they, they entered into that eternal covenant, the fruit of it was for your glory, I should say, for your benefit, for your equipping. So it is the Lord who accomplishes this out of the determination between father and and, son. and it requires that reconciliation be achieved, it requires that resurrection happen, and it requires that redemption be made to bring us to the position where we are equipped to do that which pleases God, namely the doing of God's will. So when Adam stood before God in the garden, it was the will of God, you shall not eat. That's God's will. If Adam had done that, he would have pleased God. But he didn't. Therefore, he displeased God. He disobeyed and brought judgment and condemnation upon himself and upon us. But what Jesus does in his death and by his resurrection is to reverse that entire uh, uh, disaster that Adam brought upon us is to reverse it and to lead his people given to him in the eternal covenant of redemption to bring his sheep having what they need so that they the sheep might be able to please the Lord in their daily lives ah Jonah was right Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 salvation is of the Lord of no one else but of God so, what is this equipping? To equip you, he says. What is that? The word equip that's used here simply means to thoroughly prepare something to meet the demands required of it. 
Or to put it another way, to furnish you with everything you need to achieve what God desires and intends. Namely, pleasing Him and doing His will. So you have the idea of preparation. God prepares us uh, in equipping us. It's the idea of furnishing us with the necessary and the essential requirements that we need every day to do the will of God and to be pleasing in the sight of God. And it's He who works in us to bring that about, to accomplish that for us. This is why, if you have the King James Version, the King James Version says, to make you perfect in every good work. Or if you have the New King James, to make you complete in those good works. It's the idea of provision, not just the idea of preparation, but God provides what you need, what you lack, because you don't have the power spiritual power to enable yourself to equip yourself with everything that is good to do that which pleases God the working of his will so what I find here when I think about salvation and sanctification is that's God who prepares us in every way possible and it's God who provides for us now any sports person will tell you they need the right equipment right They just can't do what they're supposed to do with the wrong equipment. So, baseball pitchers don't throw footballs. Okay, it's not their equipment. They can look and say, I really want to throw a football, but it's not there. The only thing that is there is the baseball. That's what they throw. That's what their equipment is. And so, the equipment that God is talking about, or the writer to the Hebrews is talking about here, is something that enables us to accomplish what is required by God. So that the equipping is a spiritual equipping to do a spiritual work, namely obedience, to do the will of God, and to please God. And it's God who equips us to do that. And what is it that God requires? Well, it's quite simple. His will be done. That's all God requires, right? The doing of His will is that which pleases God. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews says. Now listen, the writer to the Hebrews is not talking about final perfection, as if you can achieve final perfection in your daily life. I'm afraid to tell you, you can't. This is an ongoing equipping that enables us to do the will of God here and now. It is a sanctifying process that is accomplished or brought to the end in our glorification. So this is not the final end or final perfecting, uh, and not a final equipping, not an absolute equipping, an absolute perfecting, but an ongoing perfecting or equipping of ourselves. So... I say that also because there is not a day goes by, not a moment goes by, when you are not required to do the will of God. You are always required to do God's will. No matter when you find yourself. No matter the spiritual condition of your life at this very moment. You can't say to God, well, you know, you know I'm struggling, God. You know uh, I'm really battling in my Christian life. So can you adjust your requirements a little bit? No, God's will is God's will for us. Because what God's will is, is that which is pleasing in His sight for you. And God works that in you. So there's no excuse for negligence or laziness. Uh, Certainly, this is something the writer to the Hebrews has uh, has told the Hebrew Christians. Don't neglect your salvation. Don't you be drifting away. Watch out for laziness spiritually. Watch out for these things, is what he says. So we are always and constantly required, no matter how you find yourself spiritually, and God forbid that we should make the excuse, well, I'm not in a good frame of mind. I'm depressed. Or whatever it is. None of that counts when it comes to what God requires of His people. He requires always that we do His will. And He never overlooks that. Because is pleased always by his will the remarkable thing is no matter your condition no matter your tribulations, sufferings afflictions it's God who still works in you and equips you for what is necessary for your life to please him that's beautiful isn't it so that means when I go through the fire, when I walk through the river, whatever I face, whatever the trouble, the trial is, it is God still working in and through all of the circumstances of my life, which have their highs and have their lows. It's the same God who is equipping me to accomplish that which pleases Him. And He's working it in us, that which is good, to please Him, the doing 
of his will. John Owen says, or he calls this equipping, the bringing of the faculties into the right order and preparing them to work accordingly. Now will you notice verse 21? Look again at this verse. Will you notice the extent of the equipping? Because he says, equip you with everything good. Not, not some good, but everything good, right? And only good. Nothing bad. Nothing shaky. Nothing evil. Nothing unrighteous. Just that which is good, right? When the rich man came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, why do you call me good? Jesus said to him, I want to know the reasoning behind your addressing me as good teacher. Because there's only one who's good, and that is God. So do you know what you're saying when you say good teacher? Because really what he was saying is, you are God, by addressing Jesus as good. And it is that good which flows from Christ, which flows from God, which God enables us to do, working everything good, he says. Equipping you in every good thing, as the New American Standard says. Not just in some things, but in every good thing. Flowing from God, from His goodness, and from Christ and His goodness, that we would be like Christ and like God. That's what God is accomplishing, because God always does His will. Always. And we ought to do His will as well. So the writer to the Hebrews, notice this is a prayer, So because verse 20 begins, Now may the God of peace, so he's praying about these things, right? So his, his theology in his prayer is verse 20, but his practice is verse 21, right? So out of the theology, the reconciliation, the resurrection, the redemption, he then says, may the God who has accomplished that because of the blood of the eternal covenant which Jesus uh, sheds himself, because of that, may that God do this for you, the Hebrew Christians, and for all Christians. May he equip you with everything good. So this is, this is the writer to the Hebrews praying for them. That the doing of all the good things is by the enabling, equipping of God himself. Now you know so often, I'm, I'm ashamed of my own prayer life at times. Because it's so physical, physically oriented. Uh, help me with this, help me with that, do this for me, do that for me. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews is not talking about some practical, uh, when I say some physical thing here. There's nothing physical about this. He is talking about a spiritual equipping of our beings, our souls, us as Christians, so that we may do what God requires, that we may please God, that we may accomplish the will of God. There's nothing physical here. He's not saying, now look, I know you're having a tough time being persecuted. I know some of you have had your properties plundered and taken away from you, and yet you've, yes, you've experienced joy in, in joining with those who have been persecuted. I know you're experiencing all these things. He doesn't talk about those things. He just tells them that they need to be spiritually equipped. That's why he's praying for them. And the spiritual equipping is the doing of the will of God. Doing that which is pleasing. And it's God who is working everything good to accomplish that end in them. So, this is a good prayer request, isn't it? For me, for you. It's spiritual in nature. It's all the good things according to the will of God for my life. All of them. So when he prays for them like this, that's what he's praying that God would do for them. That God would accomplish everything good for them. Uh, it's really a service in action, right? The doing of the good things. That's a good service that he's asking to be done. And that doing of the good things is the will of God, which pleases God. When Jesus was asked about by his disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. You remember how he gave them the, the Lord's Prayer as a model? We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer, isn't it? Pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. It's always done in heaven, isn't it? And yes, as a consequence of always done in heaven, it will always be done on earth. But notice, pray for it. 
pray that God's will be done. So the Lord's Prayer directs us to beseech God that God would do His will. Now the one thing I know about God is that He always does His will. Right? He always does His will and He, he will always do His will. And God always does, according to the psalmist, whatever He pleases. Whatever God pleases, He does. He does as He determines. And notice here, the writer to the Hebrews is asking God to do something. To do something which is good. To do something which God has determined is for the good of His people. So this doing of everything good is by the supply of God Himself. Or to put it another way, by the supply of the grace of God to us. For by grace you have been saved. It's all of grace, isn't it? So God's grace prepares us and fits us and enables us to do that which pleases Him. You have to be saved, you have to be a believer, you have to be a Christian to do the will of God. You can't do the will of God really without being a believer. You don't know anything about the will of God. But as a Christian, we know what God's will is for us. So dear brothers and sisters, are you grateful for this grace of God that supplies what you need? for your sanctification every day of your life. You have His saving grace. You have His sanctifying grace. And frankly, we need to pray more for strengthening grace. That every day I'd have more and more of His grace so that I can do that which pleases Him. To do the will of God. Because like these dear Hebrew Christians so long ago, we stand in need of grace every day. More of grace every day. And in and of ourselves, like these Hebrew Christians, we are unable to do the will of God by ourselves, apart from the gracious supply that God gives to us out of His bountiful grace. That's why you pray, isn't it? Because what is prayer? Simply the asking God to do that which you cannot do for yourself. That's why we pray. Otherwise, why would you ask God? If you can do it, you do it. No, we pray because we cannot do what we pray for. Now, when we were overseas, we had to get this PCR test one day before. You know, the requirements are just outrageous. So you have to get this PCR test in order to get on the flight. And you can only do it one day before. You can't go beyond one, you know, two days before. One day before... And you have to make a booking online, and then you have to, first of all, get to the place, find the place, and then when you get there, you have to go through the whole rigmarole of your identification, and then they take you through all that, and then they do the test, and so on. Then you have to wait for your results, which they'll send to you by email and all of that. So you're really hanging, right? You're just left there hanging. You don't know. Will I get on the flight, or will I not get on the flight? So what do, I, what do we do, Chris and I? We pray. You pray for this very simple thing, right? Because I can't do it. In fact, I just barely made it into Dublin from the north, a two-hour bus journey, and then the appointment is made at a specific time. Will we make it on time? Pray that we make it on time. You know, you pray for everything like that. I mean, right, those, those are just physical things. But one thing I know about the praying is that I could not accomplish those things. Only God could do that. God did that. You know, we need to thank God more for what He does, right? Because He's doing things all the time for us. So when you ask God for something, believe that, and when He actually accomplishes it for you, which shouldn't be a surprise to us, right? Because that's what God does. He answers our prayers. We should give Him thanks. So our whole Christian life should be a, an expression of gratitude to God. Because that's what He does. So may the God of peace who out of this eternal covenant has done something for you to equip you, working everything which is good in you to accomplish His will, to do His will, to work that which is pleasing in His sight. I like that. God is working that which is pleasing in His sight in my life and in your life because Father and Son agreed to purchase the sheep given to the Son by election. What a wonderful thing this is, right? So, verse 20 begins, Now may the God of peace equip you, verse 21, to do. 
So the doing of the will of God requires preparation, requires the doing, the performing of it, right? So the preparation is God's equipping me, the preparation is God's enabling me, the performance is me doing the will of God which pleases the Lord. So I'm equipped by God to please Him. I am enabled by God to do His will. Because by myself, I can't do it, I don't have the power. I need sanctifying power. I need grace to do that. But will you notice that even our doing is by God working in us? I mean, look what the text says. Equip you with everything good that you may do His will working in us. So it's God who is working in us. And notice that this is an internal and inward act which leads to the outward, external act of obedience, of doing the good works which God prepared beforehand, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. The doing of that which is pleasing in His sight. I mean, how much... I don't even know if I can say it better than the writer to the Hebrews has said it. I can't even explain it as good as he does in simple words. So the writer to the Hebrews, like everything that he says in 13 chapters, is, is so profoundly and richly biblical and theological, right? And here he is at the end of this epistle. And what is the one thing that he is praying to God for these Hebrew Christians? That they would please God. That's what he's praying. Yes, he wants them to persevere and get to the end by holding to their faith and by being men and women of faith. That's what he wants them. But he really wants them to bring pleasure to God, to please God. And the remarkable thing is they can't do it by themselves. It's God who will do it for them, working in us that which is necessary to do that which pleases him. I desire to please the Lord. I desire that. But I know the only way that that can be done is by the doing of God's will. That's what pleases God. How far short I come in doing the will of God. And every negligence and every failure it brings displeasure to my Heavenly Father because I have not done what that which pleases Him. Yet He has equipped me. And He has enabled me. And He is working in me to do that. Oh, how rebellious I am. How disobedient I am. How weak I am. That even with the equipping of God, I want to go my own way. It's no wonder that all we, like sheep, have gone our own way. The sheep of the shepherd, we have gone our own way. We always do it. And yet God has equipped the sheep to live this kind of life. Isn't that what Jesus really meant when he said to his disciples, If you love me, you keep my commandments. If you love me, you will seek to please me. And Jesus himself would know that the doing of the will of God is not an easy thing. Father, if it be possible that this cup should pass from me, then your will be done. Whatever it takes, whatever must be done, your will must be done. And if the cup can be passed, that's your will, fine. If not, fine. The will of God. So, this is about your Christian life, and my Christian life. You remember how Paul wrote to the, uh, the Romans in chapter 12, right? Those opening two verses, right? I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he goes on and he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What's the whole thing about being transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might know and do the will of God? And that involves, in verse 1, the presenting of your body as a living sacrifice. That's the will of God. That's how I'm not conformed to this world. That's how I'm transformed. That's doing that which is pleasing to God. Or as Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 5 and verse 10, that they should walk as children of the light and try to discern that which is pleasing to the Lord. You want to know what pleases the Lord? The will of the Lord. So if Samuel can say to Saul, now God says, go and destroy the Amalekites and don't leave a thing alive. 
And Saul comes back with the sheep, the best of the sheep, and says, I've kept these so that I can sacrifice them to God. Is God any interest, Samuel says, in your desire to sacrifice? No, he only has interest in your obedience. It is better to obey than to sacrifice. And so that's the doing of the will of God. Saul just did not do God's will and judgment came upon him. We can do God's will, you and I, we can do that which is pleasing to him, but we need supplies of grace. That's why he prays. May God, the God of peace, equip you. May God do this for you. We need God's supplying grace to help us to do it. Therefore, let us pray more and ask God to do this more for us. Because you and I stand in constant need of the grace of God every day, every second of our lives. Now, I think every one of us here knows full well about total depravity. Well, I think we can all talk about and explain total depravity, but can you explain and can I explain total dependence upon the Lord? Because that's what's needed. I fully understand my, my condition. I'm well aware of it, but, but God is saying something here about me depending upon Him. Even though I am like a sheep who wanders this way and wanders that way, and the shepherd is constantly bringing us back, even though I'm like that and you're like that, I still need the gracious touch of Christ to bring me so that I can do the will of God, that which pleases Him. Now here's the glorious thing about all of these things. The best that we do the best that is worked in us by the grace of God is not accepted by God as being intrinsically yours. Because it doesn't come from you. Whatever God accepts from us as that which is good and pleasing and acceptable in His sight is only because of the merit of His Son. Only because of the mediation of His Son. Where does the merit and the mediation of Jesus come from? That eternal covenant. That's all in there. So that you and I might be accepted by God in the doing of these good works and so on. So all my good works and all of your good works are accepted because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. Not because of myself. Which tells me there's no saving grace apart from Christ, and there's no sanctifying grace apart from Christ, right? And there's no supplies of, Christ, uh, of grace without the Lord Jesus acting on my behalf, which he does as my high priest, always interceding on my behalf. What a mighty work Jesus did in our redemption, and now in his intercession for us. His sacrifice finished, accomplished, one time done perfecting forever all those who are being sanctified, and then praying for us, interceding for us continuously. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him. So this is why I say again, the whole aim of this epistle depends on Jesus. He's sovereign. He's supreme. He's my Savior. And it all originates here in verse 20. In the eternal covenant of Father and Son. That's why verse 21, the writer says, notice the verse, he says, that he may work in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. You see, dear congregation, Jesus has made us his. We are the sheep of his pasture. He truly is the great shepherd of the sheep. He brings us into His kingdom, into the glorious light of His kingdom. He takes us out of the world, out of the kingdom of darkness and death. Out of the world. And He brings us in as His sheep. The only one thing left to say is what the writer to the Hebrews says in verse 21. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So verse 21 is a prayer and a praise. And so John Owen can say that all grace is from him and therefore all glory must be ascribed to him. So, just step back a moment. Look at what God has done for you. 
And look at what God is doing for you in these verses. And ask Him for that equipping. And then thank Him for it. And then worship Him for it. That's what He means by to whom be all the glory forever and ever. There's just a few verses I want to close with in Psalm 69, which is a messianic psalm. I wish I had the time to read this, but Psalm 69, verse 29, I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for these, these thoughts that we have had from Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21. May they be of benefit to each of us, Lord. Thank you that you equip us with everything good, that we might be able to do that which pleases you, do the will of God, and you are working that in us through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. So thank you for these things, these thoughts that we've had, these little attempts to try and understand the greatness of these doctrines that are before us. Thank you for this letter to the Hebrews, written so long ago, for our encouragement and our benefit. And so, Father, we now thank you for this day and the week that lies before us. We ask that you would go before us and that you would help us, that you would equip us with everything that we need to accomplish your will, that we might please you in all things. So we praise you and we give you thanks for tonight and for your word. And by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply it to each of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 May the Lord bless you and give you a good week.